I wanted to start with a simple question. Have you ever been in a place or traveled in a part of the world where the overarching culture was vastly different than what you're used to? Perhaps it was primarily Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or some variation in between. It could be all kinds of things, honestly, but it was overtly not Christian and there was a lot of statues and worshiping in ways that are un- unknown and unfamiliar, idols everywhere that you turn. If you're anything like me, being immersed in that type of culture can be at sometimes quite uneasy. Not sure what everyone around you is thinking and feeling, what they're doing, having your own ideas of the roots of all of these types of things and what's behind much of them. Sometimes we see people worshiping with various mantras in ways that are contrary to what we understand and know in Scripture. Sometimes they're humming. Sometimes they're moving their bodies in ways that are different to us. And it seems oftentimes over and over they're seeking to appease a God or one of the gods or all of the gods, I don't know which, through their dedication and through their prayers, through their sacrifices, through their incense, through their food offerings, And as you take all that in, does it ever make you feel, well, uncomfortable, bewildered perhaps? How could so many people, literally billions, be deceived, if you will? Have you ever found yourself wondering their eternal fate? Perhaps you desire to share truth with them, but perhaps you're overwhelmed at the idea of how? How will this ever be possible? Well, today we're continuing our series on Paul a man of grace and grit. And again today, we're going to see a man of grit, but we're going to see a time, if you will, that Paul doesn't always get everything just right. It's not a huge mess up, if you will, but it's not the ideal either. And you may say, what are you talking about? And we'll get to that. But I've entitled the truth about the unknown God. If I were to retitle it now, I might call it something more like the very eloquent failure. And that wouldn't truly be fair because it wasn't a failure, but again, it wasn't probably God's ideal. But the reality is, like it or not, there are billions around the globe right now that do not know the truth about God. In fact, the creator God whom we worship this morning is completely unknown to them. You may remember that Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's been traveling for some time. We've been following this map And last, he was in Thessalonica and then Berea. And as we continue to follow Paul, we find him now in Athens, up here in the kind of top left corner. And what do you need to know about Athens? Well, Athens was the cultural centerpiece of the Greek world. Art galleries could be found in rare abundance. The land was full of respected academies. It was known for people like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. Much of the art portrayed the exploits of the various gods and goddesses, and Athens had lavishly decorated music halls as well. A stadium was built there at three, around 330 BC, and it was later rebuilt in what you see today in 144 AD. It's a still very old stadium, all made out of pure marble, I understand. It seats about 50,000 people. This theater in Athens was also built about 100 years after Paul was there, but I imagine they had a theater when Paul was there, and this was just the revamped, updated model of that as well. Athens was unsurpassed in sculpture and architecture, and again, much of the architecture were temples to their pagan gods. Pliny wrote in the time of Nero, Athens had well over 25,000 public statues and another 30,000 
and the Parthenon alone. On the Acropolis, the elevated part of the Greek city is the Parthenon and the temple of Athenia, the city's pagan goddess, built in 447 BC, and even today is said to be one of the most visually satisfying buildings to be seen anywhere. And so ancient descriptions testify that the marketplace as well was virtually lined with idols. And so we pick up the story now in Acts chapter 17. I hope you brought your Bibles with you today, because we're going to be reading now as Paul ventures on to Athens, and we're going to be starting in verse 16, the book of Acts chapter 17, beginning verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, remember he sent for those that were with him, for Silas and for Timothy. I imagine he's feeling a little bit alone in this very secular culture. It says, now Paul was waiting for them, or while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. An understatement, if you will. His spirit was provoked. Some say that's too light a translation. Paul was infuriated at the sight. It was a rather violent emotion. His spirit was stirred. Why? With jealousy for God, whom he saw dishonored on every side. His heart was drawn out in pity for the people of Athens, who notwithstanding their intellectual culture were ignorant of the true God. But I imagine the situation seemed overwhelmingly hopeless. But it says in verse 17... It doesn't say he decided to move on to a more favorable location. He doesn't say this place is too far gone. But he says, therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. So there was a bit of a presence there. And with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. He could have said it's too far gone. And I wonder, do you ever feel that way? You don't even have to travel the world. You can stay right here. Henderson County. Do you ever wonder if everything has just gone too far? How can we ever get it back? I mean, we can talk more about the culture then, but we could talk about our culture today, couldn't we? We might put on a nice front. We don't have statutes all over, unless you count weird painted bears. I don't know, it's a Hendersonville thing. But under the surface of this American culture, we see a sex-crazed, thrill-jaded, morally twisted, spiritually dwarfed society. When you see the billboards, the movie trailers, the social media posts, how will they ever wake up? But Paul does what he knows to do. He goes to the synagogue. He meets the people where they are in the marketplace. And then continuing on, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, why does this babbler or what does this babbler want to say? Now, who are these Epicureans? Well, there's some more parallels. They were materialists. This life is it. There's certainly no resurrection, so live it up. Now is all you have. They taught that happiness and pleasure were the highest good. Does that sound like anyone in our world today? Both happiness and pleasure were to be pursued with unbridled passion. If you go on Netflix today, that's what you'll find. Is it not? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This was classic Epicurean sentiment. They didn't deny the existence of God, but they believed the gods were indifferent to humanity, like many today, living with this same motto, live it up, this is it, be happy, live and let live, live for pleasure in all of its forms, you're worth it, you deserve it, everyone else is. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed in the laws of the universe. Their world was founded on reason and science and self-sufficiency. They were also pantheists. 
Their idea was that God was in everything. And the greatest revelation of God was to find him within. Thus, you could be self-sufficient. There was no need for a God outside of you as long as you understood and were in tune with this God within. So really, both the Epicureans and the Stoics put them together. We have pleasure seekers and mystics, those who feel that happiness and pleasure should rule, and those that feel that reason and science, could we say today, evolution, and the God that within, that is my true guiding light. And at the heart of both groups is this center or at the center is self is the goal. And then they want to know, what does this babbler have to say? A babbler was one didn't really know what they were talking about. They grabbed scraps from everybody else. They put them together to try and sound smart, but they really had no idea. What does he have to say? Second half of verse 18, others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul is in this Greek heathen center, it's all about self and pleasure. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Why those two? Because Jesus is the key piece. He's the central figure of our salvation. He was not just another man. He was the son of God. And the simple proof of this was, in fact, the resurrection. True. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know. They threw the door open, didn't they? What these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Tell me something new. And so Paul is clever enough. He's winsome enough. He's logical enough. What he says is intriguing enough that even this sin-jaded culture wants to know more. This is a huge opportunity. In a culture that has everything, what do you give them? The one thing they don't have. And that's what, exactly what Paul has done. And so he has given this invitation to go up to Mars Hill, your translation might say, to Areopagus, same place. And what is that? It was one of the most sacred spots in all of Athens where the wisest men of the land came together to discuss and to contemplate matters of religion. It was there that men of renown would act as final judges or on moral or civil questions. So around Paul, you can imagine poets and artists and philosophers and scholars, sages, if you will, of Athens in all of their garb. The equivalent today would be like being asked to speak to Congress or to stand and speak before the Supreme Court. Yes, this is an incredible opportunity. Yet I imagine a very intimidating one. But being a man of grit, I imagine Paul prayerfully takes on this challenge. And so he goes to Mars Hill. This is what it looks like today. Picking up our story in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considered the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. He said they were very religious. He didn't say they were very Christian. There's a big difference. And they undoubtedly saw it as a compliment, I'm sure. And then he uses this idea of their altar to an unknown God as a way in. 
Paul was familiar enough with the culture. He had been in the marketplace. He was talking to people, all good things. He knew his audience, and he was going to use that to present the gospel. We don't really know for sure, but according to legend and Greek mythology, how did this unknown God come to be? Well, this is what it says. I can't prove it to you. But according to legend, around the 6th century before Christ, it is thought that Athens was subject to a terrible plague, and the city elders were at a loss to know what to do about it. It was devastating their society, and so they were making sacrifices and offerings and prayers to all of their gods and to no avail. What do we do? Well, in desperation, they sought after Epimedes, if I'm saying that right. He's said to have fallen asleep from 57, for 57 years in a certain cave sacred to Zeus, and he woke up with the gift of prophecy. And so he comes and he starts to explain, there's probably a God here that you don't know about, and in our ignorance, we should at least admit the fact that we don't know who he is and see if he will help us, if we just humble ourselves. And he came up with this kind of random idea, let's take a bunch of sheep, let's go up to Mars Hill And let's say a special prayer. If you like the black sheep, so be it. If you like the white sheep, so be it. But if you are willing to help us, have these sheep lay down and go to sleep. The ones of your choosing. And according to the myth, sure enough, some of the sheep laid down. And it was in those places where the all of, I don't remember, it didn't say if it was white or black, I don't know, but all the sheep that would lay down, they decide to build an altar to this unknown God. And according to the legend, within a week, the plague had stayed. And so all over, every place that the little lamb laid down, there were these little idols, little altars. And that's where that lamb was sacrificed. That's the legend. True or not, I don't know. Perhaps that's what Paul is speaking to. Perhaps it's not that at all. Maybe it's something different entirely. But this is a way that Paul is choosing to get in as far as their thinking, their methodology, how they reason. And he's saying, guess what, men of Athens, you know that there's this unknown God. I see altars around them all over the place, but I know that God's name. And I'm here to introduce you to him. Continuing on, second part of verse 23. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Verse 24. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. Lord was who they told talked of of Caesar and so on. But since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And he goes on and on and on. This unknown God is the creator of heaven and earth, Paul is saying. He's the one that made everything. And because he made everything, it means he owns everything. And because he owns everything, it means he doesn't need anything. Certainly he doesn't need anything from you. And you might say, well, why is this important? Because the mindset of every false religion, including false Christianity, is this idea that the purpose of worship is to get God's favor or to somehow get his attention, to appease this God that is upset or frustrated or angry with me, but if I can worship him in the right way, if I can bring the right sacrifice, if I can do something to appease him, then maybe he'll have mercy on me, which leads to a religion of doing and doing and doing and doing in the hopes that he'll have mercy. You remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal in the middle of their trying to get their God to respond. Elijah starts to taunt them and say, maybe your God's asleep. Shout a little louder. 
Now, if you go back to the story, they don't object. They say, I mean, it doesn't say this either, but I imagine they're thinking in their minds, this is a good idea. And so they get even more drastic to get their God's attention. What do they start to do? Cut themselves. This is the heathen mindset. If I sacrifice enough, if I do enough, God will pay attention and he'll appease. He'll do something that he wouldn't do otherwise. But friends, that's not the God we serve. We don't do good things in order to win God's favor, to appease him of his wrath. In fact, it's just the opposite. Contrary to all heathen worship is a God unknown to the majority of the world who is willing to give of himself totally and completely for you and for me. The creator of all heavens and earth, the all-powerful God who speaks and things come to pass, this same God is willing to put his life on the line to die in our place that we may live with him for eternity. This is unheard of. Who does that? And friends, this is the power of the gospel. But sadly, even in Christianity, we can slip into this heathen model. If I pay my tithe, if I attend church, if I go to prayer meeting, if I say my prayers, but friends, that was never intended to be a means to appease an angry God. That has always been the devil's deception. Desire of Ages 115, he, Satan, misrepresented God and misinterprets the rites, talking about the sanctuary service as the context that pointed to the Savior. Men were led to fear God as one who delighted in their destruction. The sacrifices that should have revealed his love were offered only to appeal his wrath. That's how Satan is still today misrepresenting the character of God. You know, you stop and think about it. The entire theme of the sanctuary is God's method of what God is willing to do to save lost humanity. God intended in that service to show everyone the gifts he was willing to give to his people. But the devil had it twisted around and we bought it hook, line, and sinker that no, it's all about me and my sacrifice and what I bring to appease Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He takes the initiative. This is the complete opposite of every heathen religion. It's not do, do, do. More sacrifices, more offering, more self-infliction, reciting more Hail Marys. All heathen religions are based on works, fear, appeasing an angry God. And sadly, even within Christianity, even within Adventism, even in this church this morning, someone has a backwards picture of God and it's a heathen picture. It's a works-based picture. And it's the one that we have to earn God's favor. Have you ever heard this? I can't go to church. Why not? Well, if I went to church, a lightning bolt would come straight down through the roof and just fry me right there. Heathen picture of God. Or let me ask you this. Have you ever messed up? And then you feel like you can't pray? Now, granted, sin separates us from God, but that doesn't mean we can't pray. But Satan comes in. We messed up. Satan comes in. He presents these heathen ideas of appeasing an angry God. And so you have come up with a plan, and you say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to spend more time in his word. I'm going to be early for Sabbath school for a change. I'm going to put a little extra in the offering plate as it comes by. And then maybe I can approach God. Then maybe I can pray to God heathen idea. But we think it all too often, don't we? What a sad commentary on our own experience with a loving God. 
Now, don't get me wrong. All of those things are good things to do, of course. But are they required so that God will love us again? Absolutely not. God will always love his kids, no matter how they treat him. Reading my Bible, going to church, giving offerings, those are all good things, but not ever as a means to appease God. Not ever as a means to earn forgiveness. Not ever as a means to earn the right to talk with God. No, they should always be a response to a loving God that first loved us and gave himself for us, for me. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. And also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Here Paul goes again, quoting a Stoic philosopher, Eratus of Soli, 3rd century B.C., who has originally written something like this, Zeus fills the streets, the march, Zeus fills the sea, the shrines and the shores and the rivers. Everywhere our need is Zeus. We also are his offspring. And so it's that last line that Paul borrows But the God whom Paul proclaimed was not Zeus. Paul was introducing him to the God who created the universe, to Jesus. But notice how it's a little bit clouded. I mean, he's trying to be relevant. He's trying to be clever. He's trying to converse on their ground. That's not necessarily bad. He's trying to use philosophy and reason. He's trying to quote their authors. But I fear, as a result, his message gets a little bit clouded. And we'll come back to that. Acts 17, verse 29, talk. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Call to repentance, that's good, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. This is true by the man whom he has ordained, which is Jesus. He has given assurance of this all to all by raising him from the dead. What's the proof? The resurrection. All good points to be making, Paul. But as soon as he mentions the resurrection, they're done listening. Now what does it say in verse 32? And when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, verse 34, some men joined him and believed. And it lists a few of who they are. In God's grace, in that secular place, in that hedonistic culture, Paul calls for repentance, and some repent. Some join and believe. You can say, well, hey, for Athens, that's pretty good. And that would be true, in a sense. But I can't help but think that perhaps Paul watered things down too much, that he tried to become too relevant. Perhaps he was intimidated. Perhaps he wanted to appeal to reason, to be philosophical, to fall back on his vast education and knowledge and wisdom, his ability to debate and win arguments. And perhaps because of this desire to be relevant, did not give the straight testimony. Where's the cross of Jesus Christ? Where is it? Things are alluded to. Things are spoken of. Repentance, resurrection. He's the creator God all in a very philosophical way. But why don't you just get straight to the point, Paul? Why don't you tell him how this God is so vastly different from everyone else that he would lay down his life according to prophecy and all these other things, but he just kind of shrouds over that. And he could point out the things that he said, and he could say, I was faithful. And perhaps you're saying, you're being overly critical of Paul. I'm not perfect either. And if anything, it gives me hope that if Paul didn't get it just perfect, maybe it's okay for me too. But I wonder 
if you would have given this straight testimony, what the outcome would have been. Yes, some believed, but notice not enough for him to write a letter to them later. I mean, we can turn to Romans. We can turn to First and Second Corinthians, both places he later visited, both equally, if not more secular. But I can't invite you to turn to the book of Athenians. It's not there. Let me read you a quote in regards to Paul's work in Athens. It comes from Ministry of Healing, 2.13 and 2.15. Many suppose that in order to reach the higher classes, a manner of life, a method of work must be adopted that we will be suited by their fastidious tastes and appearance of wealth, costly edifices, expensive dress, conforming to worldly customs, fashionable society, classical culture, the graces of oratory are thought to be essential. Have you ever heard things like that? She plainly says this is an error. The way of worldly policy is not God's way of reaching the higher classes. That which will reach them effectually is a consistent, unselfish presentation of the gospel of Christ, period. Now we break down Paul's sermon. Again, the gospel is there in part, creator of all things. We are his offspring. Call for repentance, the coming of judgment, the resurrection. But I challenge you to go back this afternoon and read it again. Is it a consistent, unselfish presentation of the gospel? Or is he trying to impress somebody with speaking of their altars and their poets? It seems like he's more concerned with being relevant than presenting the simple gospel message. Continuing with the quotation, the experience of the Apostle Paul in meeting the philosophers of Athens has a lesson for us. In presenting the gospel before the court of Areopagus, Paul met logic with logic, science with science, philosophy with philosophy. We're all so impressed, Paul. You went toe-to-toe. The wisest of his hearers were astonished and silenced. His words could not be controverted. But this is the heartbreaking part. But the effort bore little fruit. Few were led to accept the gospel. Henceforth, Paul adopted a different manner of labor. He learned, and that's good. He avoided elaborate arguments and discussion of theories, and in simplicity pointed men and women to Christ as the Savior of sinners. And I think in this is a lesson for us today. We try to make the gospel and the presentation of the gospel so complicated that we have to be friends with them for 20 years before we can bring up spiritual things. We must learn everything about their religion, it seems, before we can have a religious conversation. And then our arguments have to be so elaborate, so well-timed, so articulate, But here I see Paul learned very quickly to avoid all that. In simplicity, he pointed men and women to Christ as the Savior of sinners. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, where is he going now? To Corinth? This would be after the fact. We could say the lessons I learned, if you will, did not come from excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We could say that's the key piece, Paul, that you left out in Athens. Where is it? Why wasn't it included? Yes, there was a few converts, but just some. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with or persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, 
but in the power of God. So what did Paul learn in Athens? Friends, that power is not in human logic. It's not in scientific arguments. It's not in philosophy. It's not being able to quote their well-known authors. It's not found in books such as How to Reach the Postmodern 101. No, it's found in the simple presentation of the gospel and a reliance not on human cunning, but on the power of the Holy Spirit to convict and convert. I know someone's going to hear what I'm not saying. Yes, there are times that you have to change and adapt to who you're speaking to. I get all that. But sometimes we do that to a fault. And that's the point that I'm making. Later to the Romans, Paul would write this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It's not the power of arguments. It's not the power of how able you are to articulate the message. It's the power of God. It's the power of the gospel. You didn't write it. You had very little of anything to do with it. You just proclaim it simply. Simply. What does it mean to you? Well, are you a postmodern? Well, never mind. I don't know how, how to say anything to you. Forget all that. Let the Holy Spirit deal with all that. And why would Paul later write this? I believe as a result of the lessons learned in Athens. And yes, in God's grace, some were converted, but perhaps not what could have been. So what's here for us this morning? First, what we do is never to earn God's love, but should always be a response to his love. It's basic, I know, but we forget it all the time. Steps to Christ, 13, this is how basic it is. The great sacrifice was not made in order to create in the Father's heart a love for man, not to make him willing to save. No, no, she writes. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The Father loves us not because of the great propitiation or the appeasement, we could say, but he provided the propitiation or appeasement because he loves us. Christ was the medium through which he could pour out his infinite love upon a fallen world. So friends, our good works do not appease an angry God, but should always, always, always be a response to his great love for us. And as soon as we get tired and frustrated and angry and we've lost it, haven't we? We need to go back to the gospel. We need to go back to the crucifixion. We need to weep again at the feet of Jesus for what he's done for us. Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. He demonstrates how while we're still sinners, in rebellion to God, Christ died for us. While we didn't even want him. Listen, if when we've messed up, perhaps in a big way, and we say, oh, God doesn't want anything to do with me. If he would hear you when you didn't want anything to do with him, if he would die for you, I should say, if you didn't want anything to do for him, how much more now in that oops that you made? If he died for you while you were in rebellion against him, how much more now? So what can we learn this morning? First, what we do is never to earn his love, but in response to his love. And getting that straight will radically change our entire religious experience. What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. To which I think we could add, if you don't, don't bother. But when it's the overflow of our love for Jesus, everything changes. Instead of being legalistic, I'm gracious. Instead of being judgmental, I'm compassionate. Instead of being grumpy, I'm filled with joy unspeakable. Secondly, preach the gospel of Christ in its fullness and with simplicity. 
Don't become preoccupied with impressive logic or science or philosophy. Don't be intimidated by the postmodern mind as if it's some new thing. Postmodern minds have been around forever. No, the formula is the same. It's always been. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in its fullness with love and compassion, but don't water down. Allow the Holy Spirit to do the heavy lifting. Now, are there methods of reaching various classes? Yes. Should we be aware of our audience? Yes. Do we speak to the Hindu the same as a Baptist? No. But friends, don't let that intimidate you. Don't let that cripple your witness. Don't feel like you have to know everything about their religion to speak the truth. Don't feel like it's always your job to make it palatable. Don't rely on your own cunning and logic, but rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And please don't just mutter the gospel under your breath, but boldly proclaim Jesus in the gospel that has transformed your life. Bear witness to it. Give testimony about it. And that's why it's so important perhaps we get the first one right, because if we're not in the right relationship with God, if we're in a heathen relationship with God, then we can't do that, can we? What has the gospel meant for you? It's made me legalistic, judgmental, a hater, and I'm better than everyone else. Is that a witness? Yes, by God's grace, Paul reached some in Athens. But I don't want to be content with reaching some for the gospel. I don't want an Athens experience. But I'd rather see a movement of people rising up out of some of the most secular places on earth because they're tired of what the devil has to offer. They're tired of what secular society has to offer. And they finally had something presented to them that is new, that is transforming. And they want to live for that. I want to be sin sick for the lost. I want to proclaim with holy boldness the power of God that can forever change one's life. And what Paul learned in Athens, I believe he put to practice in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It's not the power of my good works. It's not the power of my logic. It's the power of God for salvation. So, friends, my appeal pretty simple. Has the gospel changed you yet? Has it changed you today? Have you wept through the gospels lately? Have you seen that while you were still a sinner in rebellion to God, Christ died for you? If not, I invite you to read the gospels through, to fall in love with the God who came not to be served, but to serve and ultimately to die in our place. Because when the God of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is realized, it will impact everything from that moment forward. Instead of doing to appease, you will do in response. And secondly, what does your witness look like? Is it safe? Is it based on man's wisdom, the last and latest book on how to reach whatever group? Is it seeker-sensitive? Is it politically correct? Or is it a straightforward message with all love and compassion that we are sinners deserving only of death, but that there is power in God for our salvation? And through the death of his son, Jesus, and through the acceptance of that gift, not through works, not through doing, but through acceptance of that gift, we can be saved. And not just saved from physical death, but saved from the grips of sin. And so, friends, the reality is God's love is amazing. Nothing short of amazing. The story of the great controversy and the depth that Jesus was willing to go to save you and me is nothing short of amazing. And the story that we are privileged to share in simplicity, with conviction, and with the power of the Holy Spirit is equally amazing. 
question is, will you share it? Our dear Heavenly Father, what amazing words that we have just sung. Words that are simple, but words that are powerful. But oftentimes those simple words, amazing love that you would die for me in my place, that you would leave your throne in heaven because of your value and love of us while we were in rebellion to you. Lord, that's the key piece that we often leave out of our testimonies. Is it our pride? Is it our arrogance? Are we conceited? Are we hard to be able to just simply say and express that we are sinners? Lord, whatever it is, help us to learn like Paul, to have a very simple, straightforward, kind, compassionate, but compelling testimony, not because of our words, not because of all the books that we've studied, but because the Holy Spirit is compelling us. The Holy Spirit's giving us the words. We're simply so in tune with you. We're following your guidance. Lord, forgive us and help us. To that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.